Well, thanks you so much, Alex, for joining us today. And I'm so excited when I get to talk to people who are kind of in the day-to-day of, of working on interesting topics and, and interesting sectors that really affect and impact people's lives. And you've kind of had a lifelong journey of that so far. So let's kind of get into a little bit of the journey you had before becoming president of the Andrew Goodman Foundation. I started off my career as a corporate litigator. And interesting. <laughs> it was pretty interesting. So I practiced um, at law firms and I spent mm. my career doing work that I, at least the day job component that I didn't really care about. And so I would fill the rest of my time with pro bono work mm. and the work that I really cared about. But then kind of in law school, I came up with the idea that I wanted to open up a school. And so I, I treated my law firm work like a really high powered fellowship that would pay me while I was really pounding pavement to open up a school. And so for wow. years, I worked um, to build a board, to learn about a startup and how to launch a startup and all of that and gathering up people who could support me fundraising, mm-hmm. things like this, until I launched my school. And I was really, really proud and that the, the new school was a school model that allowed seventh and eighth grade African-American boys to travel to Ghana and um, Mm. and back for boarding school, high school. And then I merged my school with another school that I founded called Ember Charter School. It's located in Brooklyn, New York. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, just lots of years surrounded by education and students and young people. And I really, really loved it. It made me feel really invigorated. And then I left the school realm to help Mm. other people launch their nonprofit startups and was really helping founders grow their orgs to scale and to define their missions and to really figure out how they were going to fill a hole and how they could figure out their staffing and their programming um, in a way that would really make sense, especially Mm -hmm. the confines of their limited resources. And then after that, I helped a member of the Rockefeller family start a nonprofit that was all about reparations for American slavery. Mm-hmm. And that was very interesting. <laughs> you, you've dealt in a lot of interesting sectors so far. <laughs> and I mean, I even have, uh, you know, my staff loves to make fun of me. They're like, what haven't you done? I even, I was a matchmaker for a time. Um, I've done a lot of interesting jobs. <laughs> And then, you know, I I made my way to the Andrew Goodman Foundation. I knew for sure from like 2019, 2018, that I was going to be really involved for the election of 2020. And I wanted to figure out what I was going to do. No matter what I was going to do, I was going to do something that was going to be really impactful. And so when I learned about the Andrew Goodman Foundation, I thought, oh, this is a great opportunity to really drive youth engagement and get the young people out to vote, which is gonna be a really big point for this election. It's a great place for me to put my time and talent. Uh, and so that's what kind of led me to the Andrew Goodman Foundation. Well, I wanna to touch on a lot of things. And it, the first would be your, your sort of education journey because starting a nonprofit is hard enough, right? But starting like a school <laughs> is another totally you know, different realm in itself, because I'm sure there's so much that goes into that, that, you know, it's different than starting a hunger nonprofit, right, or something, something around immigration or, or some other aspects, a school kind of encompasses <laughs> so many different aspects uh, yeah. of a lot of different angles. So like, 
what goes into actually like starting a school yeah that is such a it's such a rare thing to like talk about with somebody so like what is even (laughs) like how do you even start to to go about doing something like that yeah so when I first came up with the idea for the new school I was in law school which is like a whole nother story because I knew I didn't want to practice traditional law and I did a little bit of criminal defense work for um for young people and I felt like this is just putting a band-aid on a mm-hmm. on a wound that it, it, I, I need to get below the surface of this and I thought education would really be, be that and for me it was and the whole story about why I wanted young people to study abroad was from my own experience I love it yeah it's such a huge abroad. thing yeah and being put in special ed when I was in high school being told that I wouldn't graduate from high school, all these things, it was really important to me to be that kind of change agent. And so I had this great idea and this great mission, but you're exactly right. Bringing it into into actual fruition is a whole nother bag of worms. And I remember I had my first business plan. I'll, I'll never forget it. I came up with it with my best friend, who was also my law school classmate. We were sitting in like uh, um, Chipotle, and we wrote it and I remember I had like I put a poem in it and it was just like you know all heart 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 like no (laughs) no numbers no nothing and so Uh. (laughs) (laughs) and then um and then uh so I got the idea for my school from a documentary called The Boys of Baraka and uh I love this this documentary in fact my mentor at my summer program that I was doing in law school said, you should watch this if you want to open a school. Mm. And it was the idea for me. It was, they were taking boys from Baltimore, bringing them to Kenya for two years. And I was like, this is exactly what I want. So I contacted the producers of the movie and I said, can you connect me with anybody who interviewed? And they're like, okay, soccer, sure. And so they gave me all these people's phone numbers, which I don't know why they didn't do that. And I don't even know, how, it was just, anyway, that's the internet, power of the internet. So yeah. I traveled to Baltimore and I began doing a case study. This is a school that I love that was very similar to my model. And this is what I always tell like entrepreneurs who are, you know, first look at what's already being done. Like, don't think yeah. that you're the brilliant person who's reinvent, like, you know, who's starting something new. Don't reinvent the wheel. So I went down, I really looked at their model, how they funded it how they got it approved by the state, which was really important, mm-hmm. um, uh, how they were managing the staff, how did the students feel about it? What were the parents thinking about letting their, their children travel abroad? How did they convince right. parents? Like every little, I broke it down bit by bit by bit by bit and really studied it. And then I said, okay, that's one model. What are other models? Since mm-hmm. I traveled the country and I looked wow. at all types of models for schools, Um, especially if there was a boarding component, I studied those. Then I traveled abroad and I looked at schools in South Africa. I looked at schools in Ghana. I looked at schools in India. Now I had, I was a corporate lawyer, so I had a little bit of money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was able to do some things and, but then I quit my job and I did it full time and didn't have any money and had no income. And I remember there was a time because my school was in Ghana where I was living in somebody's shed behind their house <laughs> and, you know, just like pounding pavement, going to the embassy every day, like mm-hmm, getting people mm-hmm. to approve it, getting a lawyer on the ground, getting land, all that stuff. It's just like wow. 
systematic bit by bit by bit by bit and really going through my checklist and okay i need a lawyer i need to make sure that we are registered in ghana we need to be registered mm -hmm. in the us i need to be a 501c3 um we have no money so who's going to do this for free and really just working through it step by step and you know this is why i help other nonprofits launch mm -hmm. that took me years like almost a right day. most of it because i didn't quit my job i like was going very yeah. slowly and and so all of that time i was really going through it i was aligning myself with people who had done it before with great mentors i made a board and i it was my first board that i built and i really thought about okay what are the skills that i don't have and who right. i need to put into my board such that i can kind of accelerate and then i went to accelerators for entrepreneurs and i would wow. always be the like the lone nonprofit person yeah and they'd be like what are you doing here i'm like i'm learning that's yeah. what I'm hey but that's a that's a great advantage to have too though right because you're you're gonna get like a lot of attention right being like the only nonprofit there people will probably love to give you their advice right you can yeah. you know you could talk i mean I, that's a it's a great it's just a i think it's a great idea and it's a it's a great tip or advice for for anybody wanting to start a nonprofit just in general right like i always tell people like join an accelerator there's yeah. there's actually a good amount out there now specifically for nonprofits but like oh there were when i was coming up no i know i know when I was coming up, it was just me and but i loved it i went to pitch competitions yeah I and I won, you know, I would I really learned because all of those skills are so applicable. I treated mm -hmm. my nonprofits mm -hmm. like businesses. Yep. That's why they're always professional. You know, that that's definitely a missing point. What was the so what was sort of like the successes of the school? Like, could you give us an idea of like, you know, what I don't know, success stories is like weird to say, but just like overall things that like really worked well. Yeah. That, you know, other people could take from it that. And I don't know where it's at now, if it's kind of mm -hmm. something else now, if it merges into something else, but like, yeah. yeah, talk us through kind of the success of it. Well, there were so many. So one, some of the early successes that I was really proud of, especially as it pertained to structure, mm -hmm. because I was pounding pavement, the thing that I really wanted was to be a charter school in the U.S., which was really Love it. Challenging. I'm a very big proponent of charter schools. I ah, think yes. I but, love it. I, yeah. I mean, it's. I think it's the way forward. But that's another. I show. agree. No, I <laughs> have me on that show too. <laughs> okay. But uh, well, but gladly. absolutely love love charter schools and and also agree that it's the way forward. So initially, when I lived in Nashville, I found so there are different people who approve charter schools. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I found the one in the state of Tennessee that I was going to utilize. And, um, and this is actually a success and a failure. So I got a huge foundation in Tennessee to fund our school. Okay. And it was going to bring kids from Nashville and Memphis. Um, it's going to be a really cool school model and boarding and like, so had a foundation said, we'll pay for the whole thing. And so I got my charter application together, went through the process, submitted it, it was like the bar all over again, <laughs> or, <worse laughs> or dissertation. And it was huge and it was hard. And then, so the, the entity that approves it said, you know what, we're scared about this model. So we're not hmm. sure. And we're going to hold this. Would you apply next year? And I was like, hell no. <laughs> That's a long like, time. <laughs> so terrible process. Meanwhile, there was a foundation in Rochester, New York, which had the worst outcomes for African-American boys. It was like, come up here. We want you. Right, so to right. me, it was the success of like, 
I was pounding pavement and there was, there was like a bidding war for it. Ultimately, I ended up going to Brooklyn and merging my school with another school founder who had a boarding school mm. in, I had a, a regular elementary school and middle school in um, Brooklyn. So we merged the two models and brought the international component, the boarding component, Love the it. work on identity and social emotional intelligence with mm. the like the things that that school had, which were like heavy emphasis on STEM and um, integrated learning models and a lot of identity work. So put the two schools together, created this boarding school component, took the kids abroad to South Africa, wow. took the kids on you know trips to Virginia and places and really took them outside of you know the, the bubble that bubble yeah, I mean. and the school had outrageous successes mm -hmm. um, improvement in math and STEM by 200 percent no high performance in the state for um, academic outcomes and really showed that you don't have to teach the test. You don't have to mm -hmm. um, neglect people's identity, particularly racial identity. You don't have to neglect the state curriculum. You can still take the state curriculum and adapt it and make it culturally relevant and really have fantastic success. So, yep. No, yeah. it's, it's going back to really quickly in Tennessee. Was it the school board that you have to go get no. approved from? It's just the state, it's just a body within the state. Yeah, it's actually an independent body. So like in New York, in the state of New York, there are three different entity entities that can approve mm -hmm. a charter. And it's like in the city level, state level, but it all ultimately is approved by like um, the Board of Regents. And so there's like different realms. And so, but in Tennessee, they had something similar. It was like an independent on the state level entity that would give these approvals to give the charter. And it was supposed to be kind of like a disruptor, mm -hmm. um, but they were a lot of the same. Yeah, I'm sure. Hey there, my name is Asa Goldstein and I'm the founder of Brandshine Creative Services, a boutique branding agency that helps ingenious heroes save the world, one idea at a time. We work exclusively with impact startups like yours, empowering your success by building your unforgettable brand, your eye-catching visual identity, and your state-of-the-art website. To learn more about how we can help your startup compete against the mainstream brands that stand in your way and to book your free brand audit, Visit brandshinecreative.com. Going into the Andrew Goodman Foundation, it's 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 interesting because like your time as a lawyer, I feel like has set you up for a lot of different things because one, it just being a lawyer, you kind of you kind of look at things from a different aspect than other sides of of companies or organizations. And it's specifically around voting, mm. it sucks because there's like so many, it's so difficult, it seems like nowadays to even vote it's just so weird that it, it's tough i was like it, all the holidays we have like in america right. a vote voting not a like it's it seems so anti-american that we don't make it a three-day weekend of like right. voting like, take friday saturday sunday shit even monday like make it a four day right. like the biggest holiday this is what we preach to the world right it's like democracy yeah. like voting and like yet it's it's like it's horrible to do. Like, honestly, it's like not even fun anymore. Like it's, it just becomes the anti-holiday really. I say all that to say like, what's, where are we at right now? And, and what does the foundation sort of do to, whether it's simplify voting for, for young individuals, whether it's, you know, trying to unwrap the difficulties of it and present them 
you know, in an easy digestible way on what they need to go through to, to get registered or, or to, to just vote in general and all the different complexes there are now. Uh, just give us an overview of, of the foundation first and I guess its mission. Sure. Well, you said a whole word right there. Yeah, sorry. There's so yeah. much good, good, uh, good juice in there. I want to make sure to address it all. So the Andrew Goodman Foundation is all about young people and its mission is to basically magnify the voices and votes of young people in our democracy. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine that in 2020, mm -hmm. <laughs> like what a hell of a year, what a dumpster fire. It was just, 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 just erase it from the just old school whiteout. Can we just old school whiteout? Basically, it, I mean, what a mess. So of course, I mean, all the things that People, you just can't overstate how outrageous last year was. So you've got the pandemic, you have social unrest because of all these lynchings that are happening in the streets. You just have young people in the middle, like what the hell? Mm, and time for them. so outrageous, especially imagine <clears throat> you're a college student, you're on campus mm. or you're heading to campus, depending on like, you know, the timing, there was so many things that happened. They were displaced. Our students had issues about housing insecurity. They lost mm. their work study. There was a mm. question whether their schools would even open again. A lot of their parents lost their jobs. And there was a question about whether they could even afford to go back. Some yeah. people have, you know, underlying health issues. And they were like, I'm not going back to campus, whether it's open or not, because it's not safe. Right. I'm risking my whole life. There were so many things. And so around April of last year, May, people were not worrying about voting. They're like, I'm trying great to stay point. alive. Yeah, like, great point. I literally need to live. And so people kept calling me, asking me to do appearances. They're like, young people aren't going to vote. They're not going to vote. Everybody's, you know, the, all the surveys are coming out that they don't give a damn about voting. I'm like, would you? <laughs> like, this is a crazy, nobody's thinking about voting. No, that, you know, in the hierarchy of human needs right now, voting is not at the top because of mm -hmm. what's going on in the world. But I said, well, hold on, because it, there's a long way to November, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so our job in that time was all about really, so at Andrew Goodman Foundation, we're on 93 campuses across the United States. We don't just come in for an election and then leave. Mm -hmm. That's what a lot of organizations do. We're there all year round, working with our students, making sure that they really are tapped in. And because we have these relationships with students, we were helping students around housing insecurity, mm. work study issues. We were like really taking a much more holistic approach than ever before. And so we were able to really see what are the barriers that you're experiencing? And they were many. So to your point, you know, this, this thing that I hear all the time that voting isn't that hard. What's the big deal? Suck it up. It's just, it's all a fiction. There were specific, very, very specific barriers put in the way of students, particularly students of color, to keep them from the vote. Mm -hmm. And that was, it was very intentional. And so to all of this stuff that around like, well, who cares about the ID restrictions and who cares about this and that, it's all voter suppression, like, let's be clear. And so mm -hmm. we were helping our students navigate it. And there were issues where students were trying to register and um, there were so many issues around that. So imagine you submitted an application to vote in your on your campus or in your town and you know yep. where you're learning, but you're actually from another state. And I'll make it more tangible. I'm from Connecticut. If in Georgia, where I submitted the registration application, I submitted it from my campus housing, 
But gotcha. I'm not there anymore. When the mm -hmm. registrar was sending the application or information back to campus, mm -hmm. it was bouncing back because the students weren't there. And when it bounced back, they were wiping students mm. wholesale from the registry. And so people didn't even know that they were no longer registered to vote. They said, oh, I'm registered. They didn't even know. Interesting. And then some- And that's a ton, that's a ton of students because a oh lot of students gosh. go out of state for, for school. Yeah, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of students. Yeah. Yeah. And then there were some counties that got hip to it because schools were trying to be helpful. A lot of schools, we were talking to schools, okay, can you forward the, the mm, information right. to students? You know where their home address is. So we were, you know, helping and counties were like, okay, we're now making it illegal for you to mm. do that. I mean, they were getting so hip to it, hip, hip, hip. And they were adjusting because they were trying to keep students from mm -hmm. voting. Mm -hmm. um, and then we had students show up when they were signed to vote with their student IDs. And luckily exactly. it happened in the primary. So we knew that this was happening, gonna happen for November. And they're like, oh no, we don't accept that ID. Sorry, you accept a gun license. You accept all types of other things. But you don't accept a state I, a student ID? Come on now. I mean, these were just like really intentional ways to keep young people from voting. And mm -hmm. they get a little bit more, you know, relevant. Some states are like, fine, we accept state student IDs, but not private. And they know good and damn well that's HBCU students. So mm -hmm. I mean, it was just so intentional and so clear. And we saw it so much. And we were there to help students every step of the way. So for the first, the very first question, students are like, well, where should I register? I'm home, but uh, you know, do I, should I do right. Like where, what, what makes the most sense? Of course, we're not gonna tell anyone this is where you should register, but we made decision trees. So mm -hmm. to help them like make a decision, if, if this applies to you, if you feel this way, if you feel that, so they could kind of navigate and then okay, now you want to do absentee uh, voting. Here's how you do it. Here's the application. Here's how you can do it so it's not rejected. Da, 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 da. And then a lot of students, like 70% 70, 70 of students wanted to vote early. Here's the deadline. You know, Here's what you have to do. Then they wanted to vote by mail. Okay, so this is what you have to do. A lot of vote by mail ballots were rejected. We found out which ones were rejected and we were helping students cure their ballots. We were helping mm -hmm. notify students that their ballots were rejected when they weren't being notified, or we were helping students know how to track their ballot um, to make sure that it was actually accepted. And there were just- Crazy. I mean, this is ridiculous and you're right. This is America, did we really have to do all that? And a lot of times we were the only organization in a, in a place doing this work. And, and it really harms me because I've spent so much time working and studying abroad. Mm -hmm. And America always holds itself up as this place yeah. of democracy. Mm -hmm. And when you really see how hard people are working to vote, and I'm one of them. I mean, mm -hmm. my story, the reason why I was really drawn to the Andrew Goodman Foundation and, and in the particulars with the youth, it's because in 2020, when I went to go vote, I was basically rejected from the from the polling precinct. I was told that I wasn't registered, even though I had my confirmation card and I had everything that I needed to vote. And they said, but we don't see you on the books. Mm. And that was it. Goodbye. Well, I mean, that's not who I am. So I didn't take no for an answer. I literally fought tooth and nail. I, I made a sit-in. I got on TV. Ultimately, was not allowed to vote, but it was such a turning point in my life because 
the secretary of state, I was such a thorn in her side that she hired me and we brought in That's the provisional vote bill that is now law across the country. Cause I was like, hell no, I'm not gonna, you know. But all what is that, what does that bill, what does that bill say? Or what does it do? At the time it was Senate bill 213 in, in, in Georgia. And now the provisional vote law is law all across the country where let's say you go in to vote Mm-hmm. and they say we don't see you here and you know that that's your precinct then they'll allow you to to fill out a provisional vote ballot that they'll kind of set aside and then they will later confirm that you are registered and that they'll count it in a second wave so gotcha it, it's the thing that would have allowed me to vote on that day that you know just didn't exist is there ways to simplify this? Like, oh, is God, yes. this part? <laughs> like, I, I, yeah, that was a bad, that was a bad way to phrase it. Because of course <laughs> there is, right? I, I guess, what are the realistic things that can get passed that can simplify things for not just students, but, uh, you know, I, I assume there's the same issues with other sectors of society that they don't deal with the direct same issues as students. Definitely. But they similar, right? The, the idea that it's it's difficult to vote Um, like what were some of the things like does the foundation work on like help create policy around simplification of of certain things and maybe what are the low-hanging fruits so to to speak that we can that we can kind of go after I guess yeah I want to actually highlight another community that people don't talk about a lot which is the disabled community Mm -hmm. great point I was shocked by literally they'll so we did a um a litigation in New York for Bard College, um, mm-hmm. because the the county had taken the the polling precinct off campus, and like the largest population were, were the students, mm-hmm. and they put it three miles down from campus on this rickety road that was very hard to access, and if you didn't have a, a car, forget it. In this very tiny polling precinct that was not ADA compliant, so mm-hmm. people who had disabilities literally could not vote, and people were just okay with that. And so when we did our lawsuit and I heard the stories of people who harrowing stories of trying to vote and just literally could not vote, it was, it was just devastating. And this is, these are the stories that I don't think people talk about a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but so what can you do and what could be done? So mm-hmm. people don't, and I, I, I'm like shocked as an aside, how partisan for the People Act has become and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Right. It makes me so sad. And I've been on podcasts recently where I've had gotten into debates with people. We've had schools say we don't want to support Andrew Goodman Foundation anymore because they think we're being liberal or that mm-hmm. we're being partisan by supporting these acts. It is so anti-American that I don't even, it's almost hard for me it's, to describe. It's I've been crazy. I know, I know. That For the People um, violates the First Amendment. That is not true. As a lawyer, I can tell you it doesn't. <laughs> it is so, and it, it, it's just gaslighting and dog whistling. It makes no sense. I do not understand why people are not supporting for the People Act. The Someone said um, that automatic voter registration is, is anti-American. How? <laughs> or that it, it, it strips someone of their right to decide. That's not true. That's not true. Everybody who's American should have the right to vote. I mean, that's like, inherent to being an American. If you don't want to vote, that's your business, but you should have sure. the right to. And and this piece, um, so there's so many things like same day registration, automatic registration, there's all these things, having what you described before, having these uh, holidays around voting so that you don't have to decide between working and it's feeding insane. your family it, and it, voting. These are the, This is like the low hanging fruit that I talk about, right? right? There's such 
the ID stuff and like precincts and complicate and all this stuff, right? It's just like, okay, what is step one here? Like what, sometimes I think when legislation tries to, to go through it and, and look, just, I, I don't know everything that's in it, but usually we try to pass broad legislation, right? And it's very difficult to do that where it seems like push a little bit out, like every, every few months, it pass the holiday first, right? Then pass this almost break up for the people act into four pieces, four bills rather than one. So it could be clear cut. It could be debated much easier because it's simplified. There's not all those things stuck in it from both sides, right? That always happens in every bill. But like the holiday part seems to be the most bipartisan thing ever created. Like, I don't understand how that wouldn't pass unanimously, both the House and Senate in a day. Like, what is what would be against it? I guess, what is the argument against that? And, and I don't know that there is, I, I guess, it would be presented with other things attached to it. That's why it would get voted down. But like, like, what, can we just put that up for a vote by itself? Right. <laughs> what a simple sentence bill, right? <laughs> like, right. Well, that's never gonna happen. <laughs> right. But like, I just, I, I truly such a, a win for a America, point. right? That's such a great point. I honestly don't know. I, I, you're like talking to the wrong person because whenever I hear yeah. people's <laughs> arguments against these things, I'm like, I'm floored. And we've taken so much heat mm -hmm. because we are a nonprofit. We are inherently nonpartisan. Sure, bipartisan, sure, whatever. sure. I guess not yeah. bipartisan, but, but we're not agnostic. <laughs> we care about our democracy and we want to make yeah. sure that people have access to it. So when these things have been signaled as, oh, that's very, um, you know, you're being a Democrat or whatever, mm -hmm. that to me is, it really, honestly, this has been a struggle for me to understand. And I do think a holiday is the absolute baseline. And when people are against things that would give people access to voting, you have to really wonder, well, what is the, what, what's really the motivation? Anytime somebody says that, you'd be like, I had the most Republican job of all time. I was a corporate lawyer, right? Like if, <laughs> if, if, if I'm, <laughs> if you can't agree with me, then like, who are you going to agree with? <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but it, anyway, so, so going back to, to sort of some of the issues that, that students face, right? And I guess 92 campuses is a ton, right? So you get a lot of voices. Oh, yeah. A lot of different parts of the country too, right? North, South, yeah. East, West, Coast, Middle. What are some of maybe the high priority issues that, you know, all students talk about, want change in? Are, are there some, maybe a couple that everybody, no matter what campus they're on, have issues with and, and, and want to see their voices sort of be heard on yeah, that issue? Yeah, sure. So we heard, and, and that's, first of all, it's a great question because previously, like in 2018 and before, the Andrew Goodman Foundation was very like non-issue based mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. intentionally. But then yeah. over time, we saw exactly as you're saying, across the country, there are trends that majority of students really, really are concerned about. Mm -hmm. Our economy, there was like so much concern about jobs so much concern about loan forgiveness mm -hmm. and and then our environment there was just like this is yeah. very much a gen z concern and a dis dissatisfaction with what's going on overall we find that young people are way more progressive they care about racial justice they care about um lgbtq plus community and its discrimination and you hear more and more about equity um, and this is something that we hear across the board, even in the most conservative places, there's mm -hmm. a concern about the way that people are being treated. So these are the things that I find are like the big trends. 
At Brandshine, our comprehensive brand strategy process ensures that your impact brand is strategically positioned and can put its best foot forward to both investors and potential clients. Then, we work with world-class designers to craft your new logo and your unique visual flair. But we don't stop there. We write, design, and develop your new website in Webflow, a cutting-edge platform that delivers incredible websites that are easy to maintain without our help. To download the free seven-step guide to building a market-ready impact brand, visit brandshinecreative.com slash causeartist. Going back to a little bit of, of your history and, and maybe early on when we were trying to figure out like starting a school thing, it, it's such a it's such an interesting sector in itself is, is sort of education, right? Now you're sort of dealing with college, right? And sort of this bedrock system that kind of has never been sort of innovated, right? In a lot of ways, the cost keeps going up higher and higher. There's kind of different schools and technology coming out where there are options maybe for for people who look I mean most people can't afford to go to college no matter like where you're from what state like it's just very very expensive and now there's sort of I love these boot camps that are coming up like if you just want to go be a software developer you can do that in a year and like that's it you don't have to deal with all the debt all the other stuff that goes into it but is there is there ways that from your background and looking at charter schools to take maybe that same philosophy into like higher education or maybe take things that higher education alternative higher education has done maybe and bring that look at ways that that could disrupt you know primary education because I just it's such an important thing that has never been sort of innovative is you know our school system it's just tragic I mean it's it's what we have at our disposal that creates the next generation for us right and I don't know that we invest innovation into it like you know, technology or we're sending people to Mars, but like we can't have air conditions in schools, right? Like there's just a weird disconnect of what we invest in and what we're proud of. But I don't know, how can we look at education and, and you know, innovate that part of it, whether it's elementary ever or university level? So one thing that we used to say about our school was that it was like the first K to 12 university. So mm. the innovation- Love that, love that. Highlighted about bringing college education to like the K-12 space, then that really speaks to specific things that universities do. Emphasis on technology, Mm -hmm. professionalism of the teachers, like really high level, highly compensated, highly qualified and supported faculty. And and so that, that was a really big part of our innovation. And that was made possible by the charter school realm because, and it's the, non-traditional way of looking at public school education so people can have access to it and it doesn't have to you know conform to the typical ways of like the worker bee model that that's really bringing up people who don't have creative thinking who all the things and the critiques of American education which are very valid so that is 100%, um, I think, where we're going to see more and more of that coming up in K-12 education because of the way that's structured. Interestingly, now, I, COVID, the pandemic has been just terrible. I mean, everything, all the loss of life, mm-hmm. all of the things that have happened, ways that we've seen policing really manifest in a terrible mm-hmm. way. But one thing that has come out of it that I think is going to be interesting to keep an eye on are the innovations that we've seen in uh higher education. Yeah. So one thing that people really are wondering, why am I paying all this damn money when I can <laughs> when I can work from home, but be home, get all my education on Zoom, never touch foot on a campus. So 
and I don't really need to be in the in the brick and mortar dorm building. I don't really need your high expensive food plan. I don't mm-hmm. really need all the bells and whistles that you say are so um, yeah. important to a college experience. Really, it's just me getting this damn education, which I can get on Zoom. And why am I spending so tens of thousands of dollars every year for this yeah. thing that really uh, you're showing is kind of, you know, not as important as you said it was. Mm-hmm. And so students are really demanding this and they're yelling about it. And, and, and honestly, I talked to a lot of college presidents last year and they were like, mm, getting scared, huh? Get a nervous. Yeah. They were scared as hell because they're like, well, are we going to shut our doors? Like, are people going to reevaluate the importance of this? And so I actually do think any time in history that things are going to be put on the table. And I do Mm -hmm. think that there's going to be a reckoning for this time for school, how expensive it is. People are really getting Mm -hmm. upset, what it's really providing. And, And I do think that there are a lot of models that have come up. We're seeing more and more emphasis on like two-year schools and we're seeing oh yeah absolutely yeah. colleges and we're seeing the utility in that and like you said there's these other models that are coming up my husband went to um for general um, assembly yeah general, general assembly. assembly yeah <laughs> well you see that's not my realm but he yeah. went to general assembly he's a u.s yeah. and he had already gone to school and pivoted his career and i do think and i've seen a lot of these models and they're really really innovative and i think we'll see more and more of that yeah i was uh unfortunate and, and fortunate enough to uh from new orleans katrina happened mm. and it essentially wipes out the city and, and essentially what it did it wiped out the school system mm. so oh yeah i don't know if you were aware of it but new orleans i am first city to go all charter. charter school our charter school so huh? i think obviously this is a it's a great case study right and we'll see if it works or not i mean it's been there's some data coming out now that is you know, you need a decade to really, I think, get a, a really cohesive approach to what's working and what's not. But I'm hoping that that can sort of be a beacon for for other school districts that have failed. Maybe, you know, think about it, failing a generation. Like that is insane to me. That it's just like I don't know. But it's like, listen, if this doesn't work for 30 years, maybe we should try to change something right. in it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so that that I'm hopeful out of you know devastation and darkness that there's light that comes out of it in some way and, and perhaps you know educate higher education being accessible for more people is a positive and just i think charter schools in general i think bring like you said creative curriculum to it a different approach to to how people learn is so important like it's no way 25 30 people in a classroom everybody learns the same it's impossible right so i think there's just so many things that again low hanging fruit that we can look at and say Let's give this a chance because the the old way just hasn't been working systematically for such a long time. But I, I don't know if you if you had any thoughts on or if you know people in the New Orleans area or that went there as, as teachers or administrators and kind of looked at what was going on there from the charter school perspective. Definitely. I've heard all good things about the opportunity for really amazing charter schools to come forward. And I've heard about some mm-hmm. really innovative, cool models in New Orleans. And I've actually gone down and done um, conferences there for charter schools and spent a lot of time going through the charter school system in New Orleans. So absolutely. And it's interesting to me, um, the critiques about charter schools. And I mm-hmm. get it. Anytime there's any kind of bad actors in any sector, people are like, 
Write it out. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> Throw the whole sector away. So ridiculous. And, <laughs> and I think that that's really unfair. And there's been, of course, abuses in charter school leadership, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also been fantastic innovation and great things that have happened. So I'm really excited to see as well, like what we're talking about going down the road, looking at neurons as like a great case study. And I think what's interesting is that there are going to be some bad ones and there are going to be some fantastic ones. And that's a spectrum that we should embrace and we should be okay Mm -hmm. with that because not all of them are going to be perfect. It's impossible. Yeah. But the ability to, to learn from the mistakes and make it better, I think is an absolute positive in itself, right? To be able to like innovate quickly. If things are not working, you could see it, change it within a couple of years rather than sticking with the same people or curriculum or, or whatever it is that's not working, you know, change it, right? And that's, that's yeah. the thing that I think is beneficial for it. I want to end on a little bit of Andrew Goodman's story. If you don't mind maybe sharing his sort of story, I think is, is pretty incredible. And, you know, maybe we can end on kind of touching about his sort of unfortunate legacy that he had to leave behind to kind of, you know, have all this happen after. Yeah. So Andrew Goodman, a young man who traveled down to Mississippi for Freedom Summer, was trained among all of these young people who traveled from all across the country, Black and white, other races, who cared so deeply about what was happening in the South and Black people really being kept from the ability to vote and the terror. Like, let's talk about the domestic terrorism people were experiencing. And if you ever see the movie Mississippi Burning, I think it's such a great example of the terror in these communities, all of the outrageous requirements to go vote. And then, you know, people being lynched, people being murdered, people being really in fear of trying to exercise that right. Mm -hmm. And so Andrew Goodman went down because he thought it wasn't right. And so he was down there and along with Michael Schwerner and James Earl Cheney, they decided to go in a car at night and they were going to go to another community. And there was a rule that I heard, and there's so many great documentaries about this and Bob Moses was talking about, there was a rule that if you were going anywhere, you had to check back in with somebody. And when they hadn't heard back from them, people knew that something was wrong. Mm. And the KKK viciously murdered these three men, tortured Mm. them. They weren't just murdered, they were tortured. Probably the most horrific thing for the country and for their families was that they weren't immediately found. Mm. So in June, they were murdered and their bodies weren't found until August. All that time searching and searching and wondering what happened? Are they okay? Are they dead? Not Mm. having that closure. And the FBI went down and uh, there was all this searching and questioning of, of the locals. Do you know what happened? Black people afraid to say anything. People were um, terrorized. And then uh, there's a Native American community that finally came forward and said, we know, we know where the car is. It's here mm. in the swamp. And that's when they were able to recover their remains in the car. And the, the, the horror kind of came to an end after this bloody summer. And so then the fruit of that was the Voting Rights Act of 1964. And really a lot of people talk about And it's been said, there were a lot of people murdered, a lot, a lot of people murdered Mm. in that time. But when you see these young, two young white men, it Mm. really was a shock of the conscience on America. 
and they watched this and they saw it play out in media and mm. it was horrifying and you see people's mothers and, and and the loss of these families and it really made it real you know this is this is way out of hand and so it allowed for this change to happen mm-hmm. and it was hard fought for people like i said people were were murdered and and so to know that decades later the power of the voting rights act of 1964 has really been diluted and it's not as strong as it was and it's lost a lot of its punch is very scary and so the mm. the um when we're talking about really reviving that act through the john lewis voting rights act it's important and it, and it and we can't ignore that and we can't turn a blind eye and i'm seeing so much conversation across the country that's forgetting our history and mm. it's really repurposing it in a way that's so dangerous so when I talk to young people and our students and they are so horrified with what's happening in America, it really reminds me of the parallels between the 60s and now. And when I see young people in this movement demanding change, it really is empowering to me. And I know that if Andrew Goodman in his 20s could make such mm. a difference, hopefully, you know, young people don't have to be martyred to do it, but they can make right. so much change today. <laughs>